Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the live recording of the Probably Science Podcast. Please welcome Matt Kirshen. Thank you, thank you. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Probably Science. Let's bring our panel straight out. We might as well. Uh, but let's have a round of applause for the people who are going to be uh, guesting on the show today. Yeah, why not? Let's everyone sit on in. Sit on in. Uh, Welcome. Thank you so much for thank you so much for coming here. This is so cool. Uh, this is my first time at this at Convergence. Um, for our listeners at home, we are at Convergence Con in uh, in Minneapolis. Well, kind of just south of Minneapolis, in the DoubleTree Hotel in Bloomington. For any stalkers who want to time travel and then see us, uh, this is I. This is also kind of my first like proper nerd conference thing. I think it's fair to say this is a full-on nerd conference. I just attended. I I did. I did yoga this afternoon, uh, led by Hello Kitty and a witch, <laughs> which is kind of wonderful. Like it was. Uh, it was great. Uh, the witch didn't do much bending. She was more on the instructional side of things. Hello Kitty was the physical bit, and the witch told the story. That accompanied it, because why? Could, how could you have yoga without an accompanying story? <laughs> so that, that's what we had. Um, it's a lot of fun. For those of you who don't know the show, which I'm guessing is pretty much all of you, uh, here's what the show is normally myself and a couple of other comedians, uh, but they're back in LA. We all have vague science backgrounds, but comedy is now what we do, and we bring on guests normally from the world of comedy, but sometimes from the world of science, and we go through what's been happening in the week of science news. Uh, we don't normally know what we're talking about, hence the probably in the title. Although we're lucky enough to have actual scientists on the panel today, which we'll get to in a second. I'm going to introduce my other guest first, sitting in at the far end of the table as, as our temporary uh, co-host, and also the reason why I'm here, and the founder and creator, and let's just say probably sole employee of Stand Up Records. <laughs> like, he, he, is, he is Stand Up Records. Uh, the, I, I probably the most prestigious comedy stand-up comedy record label, Grammy Award-winning uh, producer, Mr. Dan Schlittle, at the end there. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. The man has an actual Grammy. Was it Lewis Black? Lewis Black got you a Grammy? Uh, yeah, Lewis Black, Carnegie Hall album. Uh, and do check out his label. He's got some fantastic comedy stuff by like some Maria Bamford, Doug Stanhope, the Sklar Brothers. Oh, they, you're embarrassing me now. Yeah, there we go. That's <laughs> really, really cool, uh, really cool people, uh, really cool stuff. And you, you have a, you have a science background as well. Which I do. I didn't I realize. Degree that I haven't used in years. Perfect. <laughs> Use it just enough to kind of go put the music on the disc. Yeah, put the well, put the microphone there and there. Put the microphone. Oh, yeah. fuck, the microphone there and there. <laughs> did we do that? Did we do it the microphones in places? Uh, we did. Yeah. Great. Good. Great. Then we're sorted. Then we covered. Um, sat just to his left, a uh, comedian, Minneapolis-based comedian, and we'll be gigging together later on tonight as well, uh, Mr. Tommy Ryman. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. Uh, you have zero science background. I, I'm a theater major, which is uh, 
not very scientific, but, but, but I've had science in my past. I've dealt with it in my life pretty what? much every day. Every There's day. science everywhere. So I feel like I've been, been a part so, involved. So like, you, like the science of coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the science of pretending to be a cat in the corner. Exactly. <laughs> Did you have to do much of that when you were being a theater major? There was a lot of, like, the, the, the drama students I knew in Britain, there was a lot of, like, be a cat now, now be a tree. Yeah. There was, there was a point where I was rolling around a, on a floor in a class, and I was like, I felt like I did this when I was four, but now I'm just paying a lot more for it, I guess. So, <laughs> but Yeah, now you're discovering your inner child, which somehow is necessary to act. Yeah. You, you can't act until you know how to roll uh, and maybe soil yourself. You know, all the useful things a child can do. Right, right, yes. You've got you've to get all those things that you're told as an adult. Don't, don't roll around on the floor. Don't tug at your mother's skirt until she looks around at you. Like, all that kind of thing. You're like, no, if you're going to be an actor, you need to do that. Exactly. Right. Um, uh, I'm very excited to have our final guest. Uh, one of the few occasions we've had a legit proper scientist on the show. Like a real... This is my, although, although a scientist also with full-on nerd credentials, because um, I think the people who are here are likely to know him as the author of the, the Physics of Superheroes books. And you did actual commentary on the Watchmen DVD as well, right? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so I'm Jim Kekelius. Jim Kekelius right here, ladies and gentlemen. Jim Kekelius. <laughs> Doctor. Doctor James Kekelius, if we're giving his official <laughs> graduate title. Because uh, your, your day job uh, is professor and researcher in physics. That's right. So my, by day, I'm a mild-mannered physics professor yep. at the University of Minnesota. Um, but I've been actually reading comic books longer than I've been studying physics. Right. And so uh, when I had the opportunity, I started to bring them into the classroom, and which led to my creating an entire class about comic books, basically as an experiment to see if I can test the tenure system and right. to see how, <laughs> how hard could I push this and, and still keep a job. And um, it, that and went very far and ended up being popular. It, it turned out to be very popular. Um, and then uh, a couple of years uh, ago, the National Academy of Sciences called me because they had gotten a re received a request for a science consultant from a superhero film that Warner Brothers was in pre-production on. They had never heard of it. They said, have you ever heard of this comic book thing? It's called Watchmen. And so it's like saying to and someone... And you in, looked it up. Yeah, right. And, uh, <laughs> it, it's like saying, have you ever heard of this movie called Citizen Kane? Yeah. <laughs> so um, when I stopped vibrating like a gong, I said... <laughs> Yeah, I've heard of it. So anyway, I, I did um, do some a little bit of science consulting. I'm not so much a commentary on the DVD, but actually I have a, I'm a special feature. You're a special uh, feature? On, on the Blu-ray DVD uh, where I talk about the science of superheroes. Um, so if you told me back in graduate school, you know, that someday I'd be doing a special feature on a comic book movie DVD. You would have said, what's a DVD? I would have said, what's a DVD? <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> <laughs> and what it, but that, that's fantastic. That's that's legitimately wonderful. Uh, I would, I, I'd like to ask you a bit about outside of your comic book consulting and lecturing and stuff. What do you do when you're not teaching? What you're talking about science? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis in your in your day job in right. your lab? So so I'm uh, an experimentalist, which means I work in a laboratory as opposed to doing theory. And uh, the general area of physics that I specialize in is called condensed matter, but it's, that's a fancy way of saying solid state physics. 
which um, is a fancy way of saying about semiconductors, right? Uh-huh. Which is a fancy way of saying <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to keep paring it down yeah. until you're just like the blue bit goes on the red bit, uh, the, and then uh, I'm happy. This, the stuff that's not a gas and not a, not a liquid. Okay. Um, <laughs> the uh, and so my research actually goes from the nano to the neuro. So we look at, at nanoscale particles, trying to develop better materials for solar cells or transistors. And also I have collaborations with professors in neuroscience and biomedical engineering, where we use techniques we developed to study electronic noise in semiconductors and applying them to voltage fluctuations in the brain. Wow. <laughs> so, so Time for another superhero joke. <laughs> oh, I, I, I really, like as best as we can, we want to sort of understand what it is everything you said in the last minute and a half means. Uh, so so when, it, when it comes to noise in the brain, what are you talking about? Right. So um, there are scientists that insert electrodes, say, into a, a rat's brain and record the electric fields while the rat is, is running mazes and performing tasks. And they do this, like, with permission or just on the slide? No, no, no. This is, this is intended... I mean, the brain, neuroscience is actually kind of where physics was before quantum mechanics. Um, Before quantum mechanics, there were all these fascinating observations, and they didn't even know what the right questions were to ask. Not not have the right right answers, they didn't know the right questions. So there were all these, like, uh, there were these observations of, of spectrum of light given off by atoms, and they had a very specific pattern and space, mathematically precise spacing of, of the wavelengths, and you say, why this spacing? And the only answer was, shut up, that's why. Um, nobody knew wh- why the atoms were behaving this way so until n- quantum mechanics. So until then, none of the theories that we had explained these phenomena. Correct. Or they made very concrete predictions that turned out to be wrong. You know, so, okay. they made, so, so the theory says, oh, we can explain that, and this is what you should see, and it was nothing like what you saw. Right. So that indicated that some new physics was necessary, which led to quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics eventually led to the transistor and the laser, which led to the iPod, the DVD, cell phones, laptop computers, pretty much everything, without which life is not worth living. Right. <laughs> um, and so, but neuroscience is kind of where physics was back 100 years ago, that they don't even know the right questions to ask just yet. And so they're doing experiments with very specific ideas that they're trying to test, but it's still very early days. When I read about the brain as part of this research, when I read research articles and books, I've come to one conclusion. It'll never work. (laughs) Right. I don't know who designed this thing, but it is the most kludgy and bass-ackwards thing I've ever seen. (laughs) See, this is... Amazing. So we're still at the stage where no one really has a clue. We know that the brain is somehow a computer. It's sending electrical signals. Well, that, and, and partly that's because people have always explained the brain based upon the most complex technology they had at the time. So over 150 years ago, the brain was like a steam engine. Right. And, you know, so that's no longer the like, case. I'm going to need to rejig my understanding of it. No, but the point is, like, you know, the brain is the brain, but in trying to understand it, they're always using metaphors taken from technology. Right. And, and complex ways of manipulating either energy or information, which right now is the computer. Um, and if that metaphor leads to better questions, 
and leads to better understanding, then it's useful. Or sometimes it could lead you down a, a, a wrong direction. I just stopped at VHS player. That's basically <laughs> how I describe it. But Yeah, the brain is like a flip book. A-track. <laughs> <laughs> A-track, yeah. Well, just, yeah, what the earliest understanding of the brain. It's just... But, um, yeah, it's just like a stone. It's like a rock. <laughs> and you think with your soul. Uh, so what, what are you, so what res- are you teaming up with neuroscientists right now in your research? Yes. So um, we've like co-advised students with degrees in both physics and, and then either neuroscience or biomedical engineering. Um, the problem, the thing is, these problems are so hard that no one discipline has a monopoly on the right techniques. Right. So they'll bring in and they will talk to electrical engineers who do a lot of work on signal processing and the transmission of of information through electrical signals. They talk to mathematicians. They talk to chemists. They talk to pretty much everyone because they've decided that whoever solves the problem, they're going to call them a neuroscientist. Right. (laughs) It's like, okay, our team. Did you? (laughs) It doesn't really matter which... What, what your home department is in. Did you think at all when you started, you know, when you set out work as, as a solid-state physicist and experimentalist that you'd end up working on the brain somewhere down the line? No, absolutely not. It was kind of an offshoot of, of work that I was doing in noise in disordered semiconductors. So these are like silicon where the atoms are spray-painted down randomly. And um, the silicon that's in your cell phones, that's in your laptop computers, is crystalline silicon, where every atom is in a precise location. Like, you know, think about crystals like diamonds or table salt. Every atom is exactly where it needs to be, as opposed to just putting down atoms down at random. You put them down at random because if you're just spray painting them, it's very easy to cover a large surface area, like like your dining room table. But it's... It's impossible to cover your dining room table with perfect crystalline silicon. It's just too difficult to make sure that every atom over like four feet by eight feet is where it needs to be. If the atoms go down randomly, then it's easy. And why would you want to cover your dining room table? Well, for solar cells or flat panel displays or anything that needs a large area, you want to be able to coat them uh, in... in, um, this way. Actually, I have a proposal that's pending, collaborating with some professors for the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the next generation, for you know, developing these materials for particle detectors. Because again, they, they need large amounts of it, and they need it over very large areas. So, so you're working out, once you've spray-painted this stuff over a large surface, how to then make that useful. Exactly right. We're trying to understand. The interesting thing is, all the theories we have in physics for the properties of silicon start with the phrase assume a perfect crystal and it's okay it's not because crystals are common because if crystals were common diamonds would be cheap and soot would be expensive right and the fact that you don't give a soot ring to your beloved as a sign of your affection now coming from a country that is mostly made of chimney sweeps That's right. Uh, we do value soot very highly. And it's, it's, it's a target of opportunity because we, we know infinitely more about the properties of diamond than we know about the properties of soot. 
Really? It, it, yes, because in Diamond, since every atom is in its precise location, you really only have to figure out what a couple of atoms are doing, and then you can use that periodic perfect crystalline order to figure out what the bulk properties are. But if every atom is in just some random location, then you've got a multi-sided die that you're not allowed to roll, and you have to draw conclusions about what's on the other faces. So, um, uh, or as we say in physics, you're screwed, blued, and tattooed. So, right. <laughs> so, um, but we, uh, so that's why, so we're interested in it from a science point of view because the theory says it shouldn't work, and yet it does. And then we're also interested in a technology point of view because for solar, to make inexpensive solar cells or for large panel, flat panel TVs or other applications, we'd like to be able to make the, their properties better. That, okay. Are they working harder on the solar panels or the flat TVs, which is more important? You know, it's, it's kind of <laughs> funny. It, it really fluctuates with the price of oil. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, seriously, the interest in, in the solar cells kind of goes up and down because of that. Um, so it's kind of nice to have the transistor applications as a backstop. So when the interest in solar cells drops, we can say, oh, no, we're actually working on transistors. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but... The, the idea is, so what we're doing now is we're putting little crystallites, very small crystallites um, in, embedded like little chocolate chips in this random silicon. Um, and these little crystallites are called nanocrystals. Uh, they can be as small as maybe 200 atoms. They can maybe have like 10,000 atoms or 20,000 atoms, which is still a relatively small number of atoms. Uh, and we're putting these little nanocrystals in for two reasons. The most important is that the funding agencies have a rule that all grant proposals have to have nano in the title. <laughs> Otherwise, they just won't even consider it. And, but the second one is that there have been claims that somehow by putting these in, you modify the properties of both the material, uh, the surrounding matrix, and of the nanocrystals, and you actually get like the best of both worlds. So you get the large area advantages of the disordered semiconductor and the superior electronic properties of the nanocrystals. So we're working on that. Cool. It's the Reese's peanut butter cup of technology. It is. It is indeed. It's, uh, our motto is like, our devices are like Prego spaghetti sauce. It's in there. <laughs> You have to be of a certain age to know that joke. I, I didn't think a it's spaghetti sauce joke would be the one thing that stumps me. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of you, like, you lost me on, uh, I don't know that stuff. <laughs> that's, that's me gone. Um, yeah, so, I, there, was, there was a new story. I, I, I want to talk a bit more about your research before we go into any new stories, but there was one uh, that, I, that I skipped over, I think, because because it covers something that I don't know much about and I didn't know whether it would be your ex field of expertise, but it possibly is, uh, that was in New Scientist this week, um, about a quantum computing programming language. Uh, I, don't, I don't know very much about quantum computing. Like, I can talk about quantum computing in the most hand-wavy way of, all I know about it is normal computing is ones and zeros, and quantum computers can somehow be both at the same time, therefore quick. And that's all I, like, that's the level of understanding I have, like, in the most hand-wavy possible way. Um, but, um, but, uh, do, do you actually understand, like, have you worked with... I, I haven't actually worked with it, uh, with quantum computing. Um, it's, it is a very active, uh, 
field of research that people are looking at. And the idea is, as you say, that it's not just a one or a zero, but until you do a measurement, the system can be either a one or a zero. The idea is that instead of represent, you, you, you need much smaller numbers of bits to represent, you know, a thousand digits, say, than you would with a standard computer. And thus, uh, and the way it manipulates them, it would be much faster. I'm not quite sure I have a, a, a good way on the radio to, you know, or on a podcast to explain exactly why. I'm not quite sure. It's sort not, of it's not outside obvious. of your field. It's, it's, it is outside of my field, but it's not, it's not obvious to me that it actually will be the wave of the future or not. Right. And so um, I think for that case, I'm thrilled that people are working on it um, and are looking at it. I think at the end of the day, every time they, for example, we always thought that other materials were going to replace silicon in our devices. Right. And there were gallium arsenide or this type of material, that type of material. And at the end of the day, silicon just kept getting better and better. And, right. And so it never, and so it... I'm going to use it for baking these days. <laughs> There's nothing it can't do. That's right. Robots it, baking tits, like the trifecta. It's <laughs> everything. <laughs> it's, it's a breath mint and a candy mint. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> And a floor polish. <laughs> the, the, um, and so the same thing with quantum computing. We'll see whether they, they uh, manage this or not. Um, so I'm not quite sure about that. But there, um, the thing that's weird about quantum computing, at least to my basic understanding, is just by observing the results, you're modifying what the results are that come back to you. Yes. So at what point does that become even useful? Right. Well, it's, well at some point you do the measure. It, 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 it like s searches out all possible solutions simultaneously. And then when you find what the right solution is, that's it right there. But it did that all simultaneously. The idea is that in quantum mechanics, every object has a wave function. And the wave function contains all the information about the system. And Feynman had this idea of like trying to understand why you got interference patterns or other things with electrons. And he said that the wave function actually like simultaneously went over every single pathway that was possible and what the path that the electron actually took was that that like minimized the time it would take to make the journey and how did it know that that was the path well because the wave functions were sampling them all simultaneously got it and if you do something like that in a computer you could be sampling all solution, possible solutions to a problem simultaneously when you do the observation it gives you the particular one that you're looking for but it took less time in order to because reach that because it didn't have to take each pathway independently, notice how long it took, and then go back and say, this is the shortest path. It kind of like sent, it, sent out its feelers simultaneously. If you do an observation while it's doing that, yes, indeed, you destroy it. And, and you destroy that information. And you you mess up the system. And will uh, once it if these things do roll out to like mass production, will we have enough cats? Because <laughs> <laughs> my understanding is you need at least one cat per machine. <laughs> well, but again, you know, we put a cat in a box and we tell the we tell the humane society as far as we know he's okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, that Schrodinger was a wild one. Mm. It was 
wily, wily man. Uh, so so there, there, apparently there's this pro programming language, uh, to quickly jump back to the, uh, this article, it's called Quipper. Um, and it could guide the designs of these futuristic machines as well as making them easier to program when they do arrive. So I, I suppose that that's the first stage when it comes to actually mass producing things on these things. You actually need to have a basic programming language that you can then adapt. Right. Um, and it, uh, it does all the features, apparently, of a modern classical programming language but adapted to quantum computing. Um, according to this article, says Bob Coker of the University of Oxford, who was not involved in the work, so I don't know why they were talking to him, quite frankly. <laughs> I, I'd imagine he was just a friend of the journalist. Uh, um, but it, it, uh, you, I, guess, I suppose you would need a completely different algorithm, a completely different way of programming these things. Absolutely, um, yes. So it says, according to this article, so far quantum programming has been mostly low-level. Uh, concerned with instructing the quantum logic gates to control them. So just like the very most basic level of me, this is one, this is zero, uh, and not making the little tennis ball go from one side of the screen to the other, which is what we all want. Um, uh, it's designed, this language, by uh, Peter Selinger of Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, and his colleagues, and it's created, called Quipper. It's the first high-level quantum programming language. It's designed to express in instructions in terms of bigger concepts and make it easier to bring together multiple algorithms in a modular way. Uh, it's based on a classical programming language called Haskell. Don't know if we've got any Haskell programmers in the room. You're not, one guy over there is nodding knowledgeably. Ha have you programmed in Haskell before? A little bit. Of course you, I love this place. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the first time we've ever done this show. We don't normally do it with an audience anyway. But like the second, like, I love the fact that we're. I'm blagging my way through this, and there's a guy like, "Yep, I programmed something in Haskell this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I got it covered." And He's also, not talking I'm about eighty Haskell now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I love the fact that just at any point at this conference, you could bump into a Wookiee who knows a lot more than you do. Uh, <laughs> There's a, it, it's quite fun. It, um, uh, so they produced a, a library of Quipper code to carry out seven existing quantum algorithms, including an algorithm for estimating the ground state energy of molecules, and they're hoping that others will add to the library by writing more algorithms, which will create this big resource, allowing quantum programmers to build software by sticking modules together, just like classical programmers do with things like Java or C++, where you've got these libraries of pre-written things, so they're hoping to slowly build this up uh, and until it's a functioning, working programming language, right up until the point that people discover that quantum programming is not worth its while, <laughs> and they've wasted a decade. But... Uh, um, According to the article again, they, they may, uh, he expects uh, with advances of engineering such as reducing noise, which I believe is your field of work, <laughs> you're a noise reducer. Um, how, how, what, what is noise reduction actually in the quantum world? What, what do you do? What, the idea is that if you've got this wave function, as, as, as um, was mentioned, any measurement, any interaction with the system, if you're interacting with the system, you're, you're interacting with the wave function. And so you are disturbing the system. So you want to, but we're surrounded by, you know, temperature vibrations. You're surrounded by um, all sorts of uh, sources of interactions that are unwanted, say. So you have to try to build a system that's robust enough that um, while it lives in the real world and deals with real world things like something's at room temperature, uh, it still won't. It still maintains that coherence of the wave function. 
Um, so it's you, you have a, a, a thread and you stretch it very far. And, and you could have the same wave function be stretched from one end of the room to the other, so you have the possibility of quantum information being transported. But if you, if you disturb that thread, if you walk through it, if you, you bump it or anything, then that coherence is lost. And so that's the issue about reducing noise, reducing the sensitivity to the outside world in order to uh, avoid what's called decoherence. Um, I take a different approach in my noise studies because we figure, well, everything has a reason. There's a physical reason for everything. So let's look at the noise that's occurring and not all noise is created equal. Some noise is just due to the fact that things are at a temperature and they're vibrating back and forth. And sometimes there's um, other mechanisms that could produce fluctuations. And we look for those mechanisms and see if they can give us information about what's going on inside the material. So that's the kind of noise that I look at. And it's the same thing with the uh, voltage fluctuations in the brain. We're saying, well, what are the, what are the sources of these voltages and why, are we, why would they be fluctuating? And what's happening actually in the brain is that the noise itself isn't very interesting, but every now and then there's a little coherent signal that pops up and then disappears. And the techniques we developed to study noise turned out to be very useful for finding these signals without having to use the uh, previous technique, which was called squinting at the data <laughs> and staring at it very hard and say, oh, there's a squiggle. Um, this, this way was actually a lot more um, uh, easier to use. Fantastic. Um, I, I'm going to turn to a different story, and this, this is not particularly connected to your area of research, but I thought it would fit in quite nicely with the place we currently are. Uh, just... Um, Researchers have created contact lenses which, when paired with special spectacles, bestow telescopic vision on their wearers. Bird watching just got way more amazing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, they, these, these contact lenses uh, uh, and spectacle combination magnify scene details by 2.8 times, a factor of 2.8. Um, I, I, I really like this. This is like... This is something that's been designed, I guess, for people with disabilities, but it's effectively just a little superpower. <laughs> like, not the world's greatest superpower, I grant you, like the ability to see up to nearly three times further. <laughs> <laughs> like, he has the ability to leap a banister in a single bound. <laughs> like, the same kind of level we're talking about here. But... Um, but I think this is pretty cool. Um, polarizing filters in the spectacles allow wearers to switch between normal and telescopic vision. So what, what these have uh, is you put the contact lenses in. Most of the time, you're seeing straight through the middle bit, which is just normal vision, which is what you're regularly seeing. But then when you flip the little switch on the side of your spectacles, uh, the polarization changes, and now you're seeing through the bit that's on the edge of the contact lens, which is magnified. Uh, and it's magnified, it's quite clever. It's tiny, um, there's gonna be some debate about the pronunciation of this word. Uh, I'm going aluminium. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, the four applauding people. So you're going to go with the... <laughs> I don't know what that noise was at the back of the room. I think the people have spoken. Someone at the sound desk is very much an aluminum advocate. <laughs> and is making their displeasure extremely clear. But there's a, a tiny uh, 
the telescopic element sits in a ring around the central region. These tiny aluminium mirrors are scored with a specific pattern act as a magnifier as they bounce the light around four times within the ring before directing it back towards the retina. Uh, so in can order- you sleep in them? What's that? Can you sleep in them? That's what's important because I, I don't want to keep putting them in every day. I th- I don't. <laughs> yeah. So I have glasses. There's, yeah, there's a contact lens wearer in the back of the room. Is like, yeah, that is very important. <laughs> so there's a way to wear contacts and glasses at the same time. There is. Yeah, you get the best it's, of both worlds. It's the built-in suspender theory to yes. optics. <laughs> um, well. I don't know. I don't know whether you can sleep on in them, but it says, according to Dr. Tremblay in this BBC article, um, the most difficult part of the project was making the lens breathable. Um, so, if you want to wear it for more than 30 minutes, you need to make you need to allow oxygen to pass through. Uh, apparently, eyes need to breathe. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Tremblay did, and that's why he made them breathable. <laughs> it's apparently a very difficult task. Uh, Gases have to be able to penetrate the lenses to make the parts of the eye covered by the contacts, especially the cornea, supplied with oxygen. Uh, they solved this problem by producing lenses riddled uh, with tiny channels that let oxygen flow through. It's one of the nicest uses of the word riddled. <laughs> like normally, normally when you say the word riddled in relation to a person, not good. People aren't normally riddled with good things. <laughs> he was riddled with hope. <laughs> He's riddled with cake making ability. It, it's never that. It's you I need just pen. imagine that they're passing it down on the assembly line and they move it to the next guy and say, Okay, riddle me this. <laughs> that deserved more. That was a <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Doctor Jim. <laughs> um so uh, so they, it took it took them a lot of effort to find a way of making these gas permeable. Uh, they did it. They prepared them in ways that are being used in clinical trials in November. So as early as this year, um, everything should be possible for people with age-related sight problems to wear the telescopic lenses all day. Tommy, it doesn't say anything about nighttime wearing. I'm sorry, but that can that will surely be the next step. Um, Claire Eagle, an eye health ca- uh, campaign manager at the Royal National. National Institute for Blind People uh, said the research looked interesting. <laughs> That's all she said. <laughs> uh, she praised his focus on macular degeneration. Um, this is here's my problem. I like I love science. This is why we do the, this show. Uh, I think it's wonderful. Science done amazing things. This story just suddenly gets sad at the very end because uh, the, the person from the blind charity is saying it's encouraging that innovative products such as these telescopic contact lenses are being developed blah 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 anything that helps maximize functioning vision is very important etc uh, etc et it helps people with sight loss regain independence to get out and about event lovely 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 all good and then the article goes these lenses may one day find their way into other areas as the research is being funded by DARPA, the research arm of the U.S. military. Super so there we snipers. go. Right in the last minute. It just, this is going to help blind people and murder. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so sad. It's going to help people with deteriorating vision see better and help soldiers see people that they're going to shoot with a gun. Um... The standard, uh, it says they are not so concerned about macular degeneration. Of course they're not. 
they are concerned, says this article, with supervision, <laughs> which is a much harder problem. As you point out, supervision is in two separate words there. It's like supervision as opposed to supervision. <laughs> it's just people just overseeing it. <laughs> like, like the military is, is helping to develop these telescopic contact lenses so they can just help invigilate exams <laughs> and just make sure kids are playing in the park safely. No. This is because the standard is much higher if you're trying to improve vision rather than helping someone whose eyesight has deteriorated, he said. So what's going to happen is the 2.8 contact lenses, they'll be for the blind people. And then the like 10 times vision that can also see through walls, the military will have that one. Uh, supervision. Good, good thing, bad thing. I'm I for it. Again. I should probably ask this, actually. Just uh, uh, going on the panel, um, one superpower, what would you pick? Dan. Uh, probably just to be asthma-free would be nice. <laughs> super breathing. Super, super breathing. breathing. Yeah, super breathing. Or to the rest of us, breathing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a beautiful limited scope there you've got down. Thank you. It's either that or freezing time so you can sleep. Mm. I, you are... Fuck me, you are a bum. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> No wonder it took a year to get my album out. <laughs> because I'm working too hard. You're working far too hard. You want the superpower of increased naps. Indeed. <laughs> increased naps and clear breathing. I appreciate that. <laughs> T- Tommy, superpower? Uh, mine would be to, to never bomb in my stand-up, probably. That'd be a good superpower. <laughs> or flying. Flying would be nice. Never bomb or flying. <laughs> I'm going to... I'm going to suggest that the two could quite easily be combined. Probably. <laughs> In the... That joke wasn't very good, but he's flying. You like that. <laughs> yeah, just like every three or four jokes in a row that don't quite hit the mark, you just hover another foot off the ground. <laughs> Slowly. Uh, Dr. Jim. I would take, uh, though actually I have the idea of super naps, I have to admit. See? That's the thing you, you explain to your kids, you know, when they fight you on nap time, you say, you know, you're not going to get these naps back. You can't just, like, bank them. <laughs> I think it's quite hard to explain to a child how yeah. valuable naps are. Yeah. yeah. Like, but I would, take, I would take super speed. Super speed. speed. Um, every time I'm stuck in rush hour traffic, uh-huh. my flight gets cancelled. Um, and then also with everything that you have to do during the day, you'd be able be to good. go at super speed. That, that would be, be really very, good. I, I didn't yep. think you were thinking about that. I thought you were thinking about crystal meth when you said it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we call that ultra speed. Uh, <laughs> it's like we in the scientific community. <laughs> Ixnay. <laughs> See, that's how you get more science done than the rest of us. <laughs> and why scientists sleep. never have Where we're going, we don't need sleep. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's this quite cool story that, uh, that came out this week. The, I don't know if this counts as a superpower. It's more weird and confusing. Uh, but, but someone has been discovered whose sight and sound are out of sync. I know... Again, this is beautiful. Uh, it is one of being picked up on the recording, but um, most of the room went, ah. <laughs> one man in the middle of the audience went, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> love that, sir. We've got the programming language. and you've, Did you come across this story beforehand, or is this just a phenomenon that you were previously aware of? 
You've read a little bit about it. Beautiful, beautiful. This is this is finally our audience. <laughs> or it kind of isn't actually, because you already know the stuff we're talking about. So maybe maybe you're very much not our audience. <laughs> You're probably writing the articles that we crib off then badly. <laughs> um, but um, this is a gentleman, uh, here was his description of how he discovered what was happening to him. Um, I told my daughter her living room TV was out of sync. Then I noticed the kitchen telly was also dubbed badly. Suddenly I noticed that her voice was out of sync too. <laughs> it wasn't the TV, it was me. Uh, this is... Soon after a surgery for a heart problem, uh, this gentleman uh, discovered uh, something wasn't quite right. His, it, he describes it as the phenomenon when, of, when you have a video that is out of sync, so that you, you hear the thing before you see the thing. Um, this is what started to happen with him. His daughter's speech was out of time with her lip movements. Uh, and his situation is giving insight into how the brain's uni brain unifies what we hear and see, which is, I, hadn't really occurred to me until just now, because the, they come into your brain simultaneously, but they're two completely different processes, and you do have to link them up. Uh, and also, thinking about it now, there is that thing where it's, it's easier for your brain to follow it if the picture comes before the sounds, because that's something we're all used to. If you're a certain distance away from something, you see it before you hear it. So the brain's much easier at dealing with something if you see the thing before you hear it. If it's the other way around, you get really screwed up. And if it's happening always, when it's just coming out of your daughter's mouth directly in front of you, uh, you can't cope. Uh, so Elliot Freeman at City University of London and his colleagues performed a temporal order judgment test. He was shown clips of people talking and asked whether the voice came before or after the lip movements. And sure enough, he always said it came before. And to perceive them as synchronous, the team had to play the voice about 200 milliseconds later than the lip movements. Um, uh, he then carried out a second, more objective test based on the McGurk illusion. Have you guys ever heard of the McGurk illusion? Ha! Yes! Stump the audience! <laughs> Screw you, Convergence! <laughs> you know nothing! <laughs> what was that you just said? You can shout it again. Error. 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 Oh, error. Okay, I got it. <laughs> error. Thank. I, sh I probably shouldn't have come back to that. So, uh... <laughs> I should have just let that sit for what it was. <laughs> Moved on. So, so, the McGurk illusion in his illusion that involves listening to one syllable while watching someone mouth another, and the combination makes you perceive a third syllable. Uh, so what they what they do, and it, there's there's videos of this online. Uh, people who are listening to this as a podcast pause for a second and go on YouTube um, and and quickly uh, look up McGurk, which is M C and G U R K illusion. What they do is they play um, someone mouthing syllables, the video of it, like someone might be going cut cut cut, while a different sound is playing, and the two combined in your brain produce a third syllable again. Uh, it's, it's quite peculiar. So they did an experiment with this to him. Uh, since um, this guy, he's only described in this article as PH, um, which I presume uh, is because he wanted to stay anonymous and is acidic. <laughs> That's his basic name. 
Screw you, that was not a groan, that was a laugh. <laughs> How dare you, that was lightning fast from Dr. Jim. No, 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 it's okay, because I am also a teacher. There, therefore, their hatred only makes me stronger. <laughs> uh, so they, they, they experimented with, the, with this guy, PH, um, and the McGurk effect. Because he hears people speaking before he sees the lip move, the team expected the illusion to work when they delayed the voice. So they were surprised to get the opposite result. Uh, presenting the voice 200 milliseconds earlier than the lip movements triggered the illusion, suggesting that his brain was processing the sight before the sound in this particular task. Uh, and it wasn't only PH who gave these results. When 37 others who were tested on both tasks, many showed a similar pattern, although none of the mismatches were noticeable in everyday life. Um, which is baffling, right? So Freeman, who's the researcher, uh, says this implies that the same event in the outside world is perceived by different parts of your brain as happening at different times. We suggest that rather than one unified now in your brain, there are, low, there are many different clocks in the brain, uh, two of which showed up in the tasks, and that all of the clocks measure the individual nows relative to their average. Yeah, I love... I love this audience. The only heckle, apart from the one error earlier on, was someone there just going, awesome. <laughs> um, in PH's case, one or more of these clocks has been significantly slowed, um, somehow as a result of the operation, which shifts his average, uh, possibly a result of the lesions that he got in the operation. And Freeman thinks that PH's timing discrepancies may be too large and have happened too suddenly for him to ignore or adapt to, which results in him being aware of the asynchrony uh, in everyday life, um, he may perceive just one of his clocks because it's the only one he has because it's the only one he has conscious access to, says Freeman. Um, which is kind of amazing. Like I had no idea that. Like, but it makes perfect sense that your brain has different clocks and different timers going on simultaneously. Uh, do look up the McGurk effect. It's weird. <laughs> it's really weird and fun. And if you ever have an operation and you find that you're perceiving sound differently to time. Uh, talk to Dr. Freeman, and he'll be able to... I was about to say fix you, but he won't. He'll just be able to point out what's going wrong. <laughs> you may just be really high. You may just be really high, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever got high enough that you're perceiving sound as separate to... <laughs> like, I've got, I've got high enough before that, I'm, that I perceive sound as telling you that this is a great idea. <laughs> yeah, no, you'll definitely make this jump. Like, definitely. <laughs> Like, well, this like, sounds terrible for, for this individual, but on the plus side, when he sees these badly dubbed Japanese monster movies, now everything <laughs> is perfectly fine. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of a superpower in itself. Isn't it? Just, <laughs> finally, this is perfect. <laughs> or this is just no less realistic than the real world, <laughs> and therefore effectively perfect. Right. Uh, I think I think we have we have time for at least one um, one more story. Uh, I, what do you think, mystery radio bursts or the transporting? I'd like to talk about the transporting of the semiconductor because or superconductor because right. this is this is getting back into your field of um, of knowledge. Um, this is this isn't new research so much as them slowly moving a massive research thing across the country. Uh, and by them, I mean scientists. Well, just them. Uh, you, you can't see this picture, but it looks like 
this sort of giant white ring that's slowly being moved on the back of a truck and then a boat. Uh, it's described, the New Scientist article is described as looking like an alien spaceship about to take off on an intergalactic adventure. I think that's them just trying to make it more fun. Uh, but it is, it's, it's a ring of superconducting magnets uh, and originally used at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York to measure the magnetism of the muon, which is a subatomic particle that's, that it describes as essentially a heavier version of the electron. Uh, I don't know whether it means heavier in the sort of mass sense or just sort of deeper meaningful. <laughs> just a little bit more downbeat. <laughs> how, how would you describe a muon? Muons are, are basically heavy electrons. They have a mass about 208 times that of an electron. They last for only about two or three microseconds. They're one of the components of cosmic rays. Okay. Uh, so they are valuable for superpowers. <laughs> um, so this is... This is moving, um, it's going to Fermilab, you were correct. Right. We mentioned this briefly right. backstage. You, you said you thought it was Fermilab that it was going to. Um, Just the, the engineering aspects of a lot of these large devices is fascinating. Um, I, I saw a talk about the uh, Chandra Space Telescope, the detect, uh, like the Hubble Space Telescope, but sensitive to the uh, X-ray region of the spectrum. And to design this so that when they when it's in in microgravity orbit they would unfold the mirrors and unfold everything so it would be in perfect alignment but they have to test it on earth that has normal gravity so they have to make these adjustments and say okay now it's doing this and it's not working on normal gravity but if you take gravity out it'll work correctly and and sure enough it does i saw um uh, these mirrors being produced in Arizona for a telescope that was going to be at, in an observatory on a mountaintop in Chile. So they're making these mirrors in Arizona, and these are 10 meters across, 33 feet. They're precise to within like a hundredth the diameter of a human hair. But there's these enormous, massive things. And how do you just get this from Arizona over to a mountaintop in Chile? Right. Just the engineering aspects of it alone are just phenomenal. And so here again, you've got this enormously large superconducting magnet and getting it from Los uh, Long Island, excuse me, uh, where Brookhaven is, to Illinois. So you're going you know, halfway across the country. And you need to be very careful because the precision and everything else is, is uh, the alignment is very precise. Excuse me. Right. And so let's so say it has to go extraordinarily slowly. Exactly. And you want to, you know, monitor and make sure you avoid the potholes, which in Illinois is a challenge. <laughs> right. They have some corrupt government. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was just Ford trucks because that's how they moved the shuttle. I thought there's a commercial. I just thought they took care of all yeah, right. major scientific things now. Yeah. They'll just have like those big flatbed trucks that they normally put those houses on the back of, and yeah, well, just another car load. driving in front. <laughs> but this is—it's got to move at a snail's pace. I don't, it doesn't say exactly how slow the truck's moving, but I'd imagine slow enough that, like old school driving, where a man can walk in front of it <laughs> waving a flag to warn oncomers that. Um, and it's going to be on the truck for a little bit, um, and then it's going to go on the Mississippi River. So it's just going to get on a barge on the Mississippi River to Illinois. Well, most of these large magnets have a uh, 
lifelong dream of, of reenacting scenes from Huck Finn. So, <laughs> uh, let's hope I think it's, it's putting put out to retirement that that's the <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, it's just currently it's like part of the, the Magnet Make-A-Wish Foundation. <laughs> So, yeah, right, yeah, you are right, actually. Weirdly, right now it's currently painting a fence. <laughs> <laughs> that is strange. I didn't know... I did... you tricked me. <laughs> didn't know it could do it, such a thing. Its companion is strictly known as Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's going to be part of this new experiment called Muon G2, mm-hmm. uh, which is in uh, Fermilab. Uh, yes, it, when it's on a barge going going up the Mississippi for days. Huh? It does feel like just an errant water skier could ruin science. <laughs> <laughs> just what a, we would just feel the worst person in the world, just, just buzzing past. Oh, well, there goes, there goes a billion-dollar experiment. <laughs> Cannonball! <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Asian carp. Yeah. They jump. Yeah. They would, oh, they jump. Yeah, they would jump right through the hole in the middle of the magnet. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think there are enough science experiments that have marine shows as part of them. <laughs> like, I, I don't know, maybe people would have more of an interest in science if there were, was like a sea lion balancing a ball on its nose in the, in the middle of science. <laughs> like, science and water show. On the hour, every hour, the superconductor, and then Shamu just leaping through the middle. <laughs> what what is it they need the super super magnets for? And what, this well, the super, con, well, the, super the superconducting magnet superconductors are a fascinating material. Many metals are superconductors. If you cool them down to very very low temperatures, they suddenly have no resistance to electrical current. So everything, all, mo- most normal metals will all have some resistance to electrical current. You try to pass too much current through it, they'll start glowing hot, you know, they'll get hot, like a toaster right. wire. Or and that's they might... because the electrons that are, that are the current are interacting, with, like bouncing off the other... But I'm seeing off atoms that are defects or imperfections in the material. And, and basically, it, that's why you have to continually... You have to keep your, your electric lamp plugged into the wall. You have to keep pushing the current through the circuit because energy gets lost due to the produ- production of heat, or the production of light inside a light bulb. That energy is going out, so you have to keep providing energy. But a superconductor is kind of like a hose that has no, that could have bumps or, or clogs in it, but it, it has no holes along the length of the hose, so any water that goes in at one end has to come out the other end, because there's no other place for it to go. Okay. There's no loss of energy, so you can actually get currents to flow around in a ring in a superconductor. They've actually done this, where they kept it cold for a decade, and they saw that the current did not decrease by, by any more than like one part in ten trillion, so it was like Absolutely no change in the current over 10 years. So it'd be almost can like you, just having a hook. Sorry, go can you bend it and then let it go, and a whole bunch more energy will shoot out like a hose, too? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> kind of mess with the other scientists, like, whoop, there he goes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I have 
wouldn't have thought so, but... So the idea with the superconducting magnets is you have an electromagnet. So you have this iron core and you have a coil of wire around it and you pass a current through it and you can produce a very large magnetic field. But if your, co- if your wire has no resistance to electrical current, then you can flow even much more current through it without it getting very hot. The problem is that if you were to run the currents in a normal copper wire, uh, the currents that they're using for these magnets, if it wasn't a superconductor, the copper would actually melt. It would get so hot that this, this high current density would melt the wire and the whole thing would fail. So here you've got another type of material. You cool it down. It has no resistance to flow. And now you can have very high currents going through it without it um, melting, without it being destroyed. Very high currents mean very high magnetic fields, which, which is good because these particles are moving very fast, these muons, and you need a large magnetic field to bend it around in a circle to keep it in this ring and keep it from you know, irradiate, messing up the other side of this experiment. Ha! Here's some new muons. Think fast! <laughs> oh, I've got muons in my face. Oh, this is the worst. Covered in them. So, so how do they... Wait, that experiment where they've got the current that's going continuously without slowing down, so that's effectively like... That would almost be like having a closed loop of water and then just pushing it once and then stepping back and it just keeps moving. That's exactly, that's exactly what it's like. How do they measure the current Very, without slowing it down? That's, without... A, that's an excellent question. Um, currents create magnetic fields. Uh-huh. And so what you're doing is you sample, you like probe that magnetic field without distorting the current. And so you detect that the current hasn't changed by seeing that the magnetic field it's producing doesn't vary. And that doesn't take energy away from it? it you would think it would, um, but you have to be very careful in non-interactive ways. You can, you can actually do this, though. But that's it. That's it that's it. It's non-trivial. It's, it, well, which is science talk for hard. Right. <laughs> um, but it, but that, that's a very good point on, on how you do that. So you have to... One, these are not easy experiments to do, but people have done them because they wanted to, to pro, you know, push... Is this truly zero, or is it just really tiny? Right. And, and to within the level of measurement, it's it's zero. Wow. Uh, so how does that compare to my perpetual motion machine, which I have? <laughs> right. It would be great if just like right at that moment I just pulled out a thing. Explain this, Jim. <laughs> well, explain it. Uh, what you have there is a drinky bird. <laughs> <laughs> And it goes forever, or at least it hasn't stopped in the five minutes I've been looking at it, which is effectively forever. Right, that's right. And then I got bored and <laughs> moved on to something else. No, Solved you, it. You, it's, it's, it's not a true perpetual motion in the sense that you have to keep these metals very cold. and So, you, so you're still putting energy into Correct, in some sense, uh, to maintain the refrigeration. Um, so, uh, but there again, it's the, this... You're, the perpetual motion machine is the idea of being able to extract useful work without changing like the heat energy right. of a system. And uh, even even in a superconducting ring, there's no useful work. If you tried to get useful work by like using that magnetic field that they created then that was to do something, then you would be sucking energy out. So that so you still wouldn't violate any laws of thermodynamics that way. One day. <laughs> one day I'll violate close, them. Close, close. <laughs>
uh, I think uh, that I know a load more about this stuff than I did going in, and I thank you for that. I think we're pretty much out of time for uh, for the show. You, I, I apologize for for talking so much and. Never, never ask a professor a simple question. You always get a lecture in reply. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I still don't know where the toilets are. <laughs> I know how they work. <laughs> I understand toilets a lot better, but I'm still desperate. Uh, no, it, it's, been, it's been a genuine pleasure having you on and having everyone on. Um, before, before we go, uh, before I thank our panel, I'd like to thank uh, everyone here at Convergence and also the people on the sound desk uh, and recording for... Yeah, I can see little fingers going up at that. Please applaud for the tech and the sound guys and the stage manager because they make this happen. Uh, without them, there wouldn't be a show. Um, and everyone at Convergence. Uh, for the listeners at home and for you guys here as well, uh, we f- you can find us at probablyscience.com uh, and tweet us at probablyscience with any questions, comments, clarifications, or email probablyscience at gmail.com. And if you're an Apple user, please go on iTunes and give us nice ratings and nice comments because that helps other people find us. Uh, but um, have stuff coming up. Um, I'd imagine Dan, uh, Dan Schlissel, thank you for joining us on the panel. And StandUpRecords.com, is that it? StandUpRecords.com. Oh, sorry, Dan Schlissel, ladies and gentlemen. Dan. And uh, if you go to StandUpRecords.com, you can find all of their releases, some new releases that are coming out soon. And like I say, some of the best... Some of the best stand-up comedians around uh, have produced albums that are released on his label and produced and mastered by him. Yep. Uh, some of your favorite comics, go, go and check them out. And some people you might not know who you will become fans of. Uh, and you are at Stand-Up Records? At Stand-Up Records, yes. Um, and then at Tommy Ryman? Yep, that's that, my Twitter. That's, I have a, an album on Stand-Up Records called Bath Time with Tommy, if you want to. Pick that up. <laughs> get, get that out. And, and uh, Dr. Jim Kakelius. Yes. You you are a Twitter. You are you on Twitter? No, I'm I'm actually not on Twitter. The problem with Twitter is that it's 140 characters, and that's just too many characters. <laughs> I just I just can't fill up that space. <laughs> so uh, so don't don't look for him on Twitter. <laughs> but do get hold of the physics of superheroes. Which is his book, uh, where basically you, you explain a lot of basic and less basic scientific concepts using comic books. Right, right. We're trying as much as possible to use those cases where the superheroes get their science right. Right. And then, and then explaining things like, I've seen some of your book where you're explaining things like um, using Newtonian uh, mathematics, Newtonian physics, to calculate how fast and how hard Superman would have to jump to leap a building, what the force is, and, and explaining exactly. and explaining it as you go along. So it's a great introduction to science and just a cool book. Thank you. Uh, so please do check that out. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming along. Thank you, audience, for being part of this and sharing and knowing more than we did. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you guys for having me, and thank you listeners at home. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. I've been Matt Kirshen. Oh, and come to my show at 7 o'clock tonight, my stand-up show, uh, which Tommy is also on. Thank you.